As we turn our attention now to the reading and proclamation of God's word, let us pray for the Spirit's illumination. O Lord, your word goes forth and accomplishes that for which you purpose it. And indeed, one little word from your mouth shall fell the prince of darkness. Speak to us now, O God, your word once again to your church gathered here today. Give us ears to hear what you're saying and courage to follow in the way of Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. The Old Testament lesson from the lectionary for the first Sunday of Lent comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 91, verses 1 through 2 and 9 through 16. I invite you now to listen for the word of the Lord. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and fortress, my God in whom I trust. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, no scourge come near your tent. For God will command his angels concerning you, to guard you in all your ways, on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. And the gospel lesson comes from the gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the inhabited world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If then you will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God, and serve only him. Then the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, 
it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's account of the temptation by the devil in the wilderness follows immediately after the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist in the Jordan. And at his baptism, Jesus came up out of the water, the spirit descended upon him like a dove, and the voice of God proclaimed to him from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. At his baptism, Jesus' identity as God's son was unequivocally and irrevocably proclaimed. But it's that same identity, that very claim that God made at Jesus' baptism, that the devil seeks to challenge throughout Jesus' temptation. You are my son, God says at Jesus' baptism. If you are the son of God, the devil repeats again and again throughout the course of the temptation narrative. The devil tempts Jesus by suggesting that he must prove his identity as the Son of God. And my friends, such is the very nature of temptation. To be tempted is to call into question that which God has already declared to be true about us. To be tempted is to second-guess who God has made us to be, to allow doubt to creep into our minds that we are someone other than who God tells us we are. To be tempted is to listen to a voice other than God's try to define us. You are loved, God says. Prove it is the devil's constant retort, the devil's constant temptation. We're familiar with a range of cultural caricatures about the devil, who is usually red with horns and a pitchfork, right? Maybe a pair of wings. But in the Bible, the devil is not so much the tempter, but the accuser. The devil seeks to destabilize the ideals of God's creation. The devil slanders and misrepresents The devil bears false witness and falsely accuses. And true to form, throughout the temptation narrative, the devil seeks to undermine what God has pronounced at Jesus' baptism. And he does so in three iterations. First, the devil asks Jesus to prove he is the son of God by turning a stone into a loaf of bread. After 40 days of fasting, Jesus was famished, and so this temptation hits him at his place of need, his place of vulnerability, his place of craving. But it's not immediately obvious, is it, why this demand of the devil is a temptation? I mean, he doesn't tell Jesus to steal a loaf of bread or to hoard a loaf of bread from someone in need. Those would have been much more overtly sinful temptations. If you have the power to turn stones into bread as Jesus did, well, 
what would be so bad about manufacturing food in your time of need? What would have been so wrong with doing what the devil asks in this case? Well, it seems as if the temptation here is a temptation to self-reliance. To self-reliance. If you are the son of God, the devil says in effect, prove that you don't need anyone else. Prove you can do it all on your own. Prove you can meet your own needs. Sometimes we think we need to prove ourselves through productivity. Self-sufficiency is the subtle temptation with which our culture constantly bombards us. The last thing we want to do is rely on others for daily bread, right? We're supposed to make it on our own, pave our own way, provide for ourselves, meet our own needs. Independence, not interdependence, is our cultural value. You know, one of the greatest fears I so often hear repeated by people growing older is the fear of becoming a burden to others. The loss of the ability to do things on one's own is a hard enough challenge, but gaining the ability to ask for help, well, that's another challenge altogether. Many of us come to define ourselves by what we can do for ourselves, by what we can produce, by what we can provide. Such is the level of independence our prosperity affords us. And such is the level of independence our culture comes to expect of us. But there's a certain pride in this ideal of the self-made man or the self-made person. A kind of pride that's ultimately unbecoming of those who are rooted in their knowledge that they are children of God. Because to be a child of God is to know that every good and perfect gift comes from God. That we can't provide for ourselves apart from God's generous hand. Indeed, apart from God, we can do nothing, as the scripture says. Sure, we love to bake our own bread, satisfy our own hunger. But there is a deeper hunger that bread cannot satisfy, a deeper hunger that lies beyond the realm of the self. Only God can truly satisfy our deepest hunger. I once spoke with a monk who explained to me why he practices fasting. To fast, he said, is to harness the physical sensation of hunger to draw one's attention to the spiritual sensation of our longing for God. It's to employ a fleeting physical emotion to reinforce an abiding spiritual truth that with every breath we are constantly dependent on the mercy of God. Friends, there is a hunger that only God can satisfy. And it's those who are established in their identity as God's beloved children who hunger and thirst no more. Jesus knows this truth and so dismisses the devil's first test. One does not live by bread alone, Jesus says. So the devil tempts Jesus from another angle. He tells Jesus to worship him. And in exchange, the devil promised to give the glory and authority over all the kingdoms of the inhabited world. Now, this isn't explicitly couched as a challenge to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, but the temptation does implicitly suggest and question 
whether Jesus has the authority that one would expect the Son of God to have. Worldly glory and authority are the carrot the devil dangles before Jesus. The temptation here is a temptation of power. And power is surely the most, water, most mouth-watering temptation that the human being knows, right? It's a temptation that becomes all the more compelling, the more power one accumulates. No one loves power quite like the powerful, right? And no one wants to cede power less than those with the most power. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, as they say. To shield themselves from accountability, the powerful love to control the narrative. The powerful love to portray an image of perfection and invincibility. They want to be loved and adored. In a word, the powerful want to be worshipped, right? The powerful want to be worshipped. And so it is with the devil, who is apparently already in possession of all the glory, glory and authority of the inhabited kingdoms of the world. At least he suggests that they're his to give away. The devil's powerful. He's used to bending people to his will. He's used to successfully bribing people with offers to get in on his power. He's used to the worship of the ambitious. And friends, when we worship the powerful in an attempt to lay hold of some semblance of their power, of some semblance of their authority, we in fact become subject to them. Worship is a form of submission. And when we worship our leaders, when we refuse to hold them accountable, when we follow them uncritically, we yield and surrender our voice and our conscience. There's only one whom we are meant to worship and serve, only one uncorrupted by power and authority, and that is the Lord God Almighty. The power we are meant to have finds its potency when we allow God to be God and commit ourselves to doing God's will. And what does the Lord require? The prophet asks to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Justice, mercy, humility, that's power. That's power. And it's the kind of power the devil doesn't know. Jesus knows the one to whom worship is properly directed. He feels no need to get in on the, get the devil's game, no desire to grasp for the devil's alleged authority. And so Jesus dismisses the devil's second test. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him, Jesus says. Now the devil's growing desperate and running out of time. So he whisks Jesus to Jerusalem and places him at the highest point of the sacred sanctuary. And the devil demands that Jesus prove he is God's son by throwing himself off the pinnacle, thereby demonstrating that God will rescue him. And as if to up the ante, the devil even quotes scripture to reinforce the temptation. If you're the son of God, he says, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on his hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. How demonic 
to use even the words of Scripture to call into question someone's belovedness as a child of God. Sheesh. The devil has cut to the heart of the matter here. He's no longer trying to disguise his agenda, his temptation, his goal of making Jesus come to doubt the reality of God's love, the reality of God's sonship. The devil says, prove that you are the son of God by jumping off the temple. If you really are who God says you are, God will rescue you. The devil's words foreshadow the shouts from the crowd gathered around the cross. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross, they will say. It seems a kind of outrageous thing to ask. But sometimes when life is especially hard, we sometimes test God in this sort of way, right? Sometimes we bargain with God or place contingencies on our faith in an attempt to provoke God to act. God, if you love me, answer this prayer. God, if you're real, bail me out of this. God, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. But Jesus not only knows that he has nothing to prove, Jesus also knows God has nothing to prove. Still resisting the devil's game of give and take, Jesus dismisses the temptation once more. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so the devil departs, defeated, until an opportune time, the text says, rather ominously. The temptation narrative puts to the test that which God has declared to be true at Jesus' baptism. God has placed no conditions on Jesus' sonship, on his belovedness, on the pleasure that God takes in him. And yet the devil seeks to undermine the truth and the assurance of God's words by placing all sorts of conditions before Jesus as stumbling blocks. The devil demands that Jesus prove that which is already a reality for him. And my friends, in the same way, any voice that calls into question the claim of God upon our lives is the voice of the devil. Any assertion that we must prove that we can be loved is demonic. God has not placed any conditions on God's love. You are mine, God has said. No ifs, ands, or buts. This is what Christians mean when we talk about grace. No contingencies, no prerequisites, no proof of merit required. God's grace is simply what is most true. You are loved and claimed and redeemed by God. And what God has done for you is more consequential than anything that you've done or not done. God has left you with nothing to prove. But the core of every temptation we face, every temptation at the bottom of things, is to believe otherwise. And when we fall prey to a temptation, what our actions ultimately reflect is some insecurity, some dissatisfaction, some misunderstanding of who we really are in Jesus Christ, loved, secure, and enough. 
Dearly beloved, we belong to God. Don't be tempted to believe otherwise. Don't be tempted to live otherwise. Embrace what's true. Live into what's true. You are a child of God, and you have nothing to prove. Thanks be to God. Amen.